0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit SevenMileWaltham.com. Well, Seven Mile uh, Road Church, it is so good to be with you. Uh, I used to live here in Waltham uh, for about five years. I lived right up on Lexington Street, before that down on Moody Street. And I used to pray that God would send more laborers to come into this city to proclaim the gospel. And that there would be more churches that would be planted as a result. And so you are an answer to prayer. And so as I look out at you, I thank God for you. In fact, I used to come in here and do youth ministry with a bunch of different youth, and so even walking into this building and seeing that this is a place where the gospel is being proclaimed on a regular basis uh, just makes my heart sing. So thank you for your faithfulness, your encouragement to me. I want to start off today by taking you back. Is that okay? Can I take you back in time for a moment? I want to take you back to a movie that came out and that and it was amazing to me. It kind of radically transformed the way I looked at movies. Who remembers "The Matrix? Remember the Matrix when the Matrix first came out, that first one? I mean, it was like a mind-bending movie. And I remember watching it and just being like, wow, this is like it, it's talking about how there's there's real life, but then there's something overlaid on top of it. And what is real? What is true? It was an amazing story. It got us to the place of, of really questioning the world that we live in. Is that the true world? The world where we're walking around, where we're running, where we're laughing, where we're stepping on the pavement, where we're holding this spoon, is any of that real? Or is there something else that's being laid over top of it, over top of the actual true one? Now, the movie, if you remember, is one chase scene after another, right? From the very beginning, you've got these agents who are, who are chasing after this man named Neo and his new friends. And, and they're going after him because it is suspected that maybe Neo might be the chosen one. He might be the one who's going to set everybody free, and he's going to show them the truth. And of course, Agent Smith and all the other other agents don't want that to happen. None of the goons want that to happen. And so they continue to chase him, and you see constant fight scenes, and it's pretty amazing as you're watching the whole thing. It's an action-packed movie. And at the very end of the movie, we see that Neo is being chased down by these agents, and after miraculously coming back to life, after a brutal attack, suddenly he realizes with confidence that he is in fact the chosen one. And he, and he stands up and he turns to face these agents and, and they fire dozens of bullets at him. And what does he do? He stops, he stands up, he lifts up his hand and he says one word, no. And all of a sudden the bullets freeze. And you're just, I mean, you're watching this, and you're like, I mean, who remembers seeing this for the first time, right? It's amazing. The bullets freeze. And he looks at them, and he just plucks them out of the air, and he drops them, and then all of a sudden, all the bullets fall. And then the Agent Smith rushes him, because he's like, at least I can fight him. But what does Neo do? He, He fights back, and it's almost like it's in slow motion. In fact, at one point, he stops, and he puts his right hand behind his back, and he fights him with one hand. Do you remember? And then with a Bruce Lee kick... He kicks Agent Smith down the hallway, and you realize for the first time that Neo really is stronger and greater than anything in the Matrix or in the world beyond it. I think if you and I are honest, all of us are faced with constant things in our life. All of us are faced with constant attacks, constant trials, circumstances that are challenging. All of us feel like sometimes there is a barrage of bullets headed our way. And all of us desire to be greater and stronger than what comes against us. We want to see victory in our lives. We don't want to live under oppression. We don't want to live under attack. We don't want to live in a state of constant anxiety and worry about what faces us. And I think if all of us are honest, we've all probably come to realize that we aren't greater. We aren't stronger by ourselves. But there is one who is greater. There is one who is stronger. There is one who gives us help so that we can face the enemy. Is that true? His name is Jesus. And so today, I want to tell you more about that Jesus. Today, I want to encourage you that Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Now, why does that matter? That matters because, church, you and I need that help. You and I desperately need a Savior, desperately need someone who will fight for us, who has fought for us, and will offer us deliverance and freedom. And so as we read in our text today, we saw that there was one large story uh, spoken in two parts and typically when you when you hear these two texts preach you hear them preach separately you hear the story of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and you hear a sermon on that and then you hear a story of Jesus and the Gerasian demoniac and that's another sermon in itself and that's fine to preach it that way I've done it that way but I think if we bring them to, the, bring the two together we're going to find something pretty amazing today. And the, the reality is, as we stop and look at this text, we actually find that this is one large story. If you look at chapter 4, verse 35, it begins with Jesus saying to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And then at the very end, they return back, and we see in verse 21 of chapter 5, and when Jesus had crossed, back, crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside Jesus. The sea. So you see, kind of like bookends on either side, there is a, a desire to cross the other side, and then there's a return. This is a journey, one story told in two parts. And so we're going to look at that today. Now, let me just give you a quick con- some quick context on the Gospel of Mark. Maybe you've read it before, maybe you haven't, but the Gospel of Mark is an amazing story. And it's an amazing story that's trying to do really one thing, and that's to introduce you to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It wants to introduce you to Jesus Christ. In his kingdom. And so, as we've, uh, if, if we were to, to read the story kind of from the very beginning until where we are now, we would see that the first three and a half chapters are Jesus fulfilling prophecies, teaching, healing, calling disciples to follow him, and everything is done at a rapid and exciting pace. And as momentum has been building throughout the Gospel of Mark, this question is held before us over and over again. And that is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Jesus decides to answer that question kind of in the lead up to this uh, through parables. He tells these parables and he, he holds their meaning back and, and only shares them with his disciples, with his chosen ones. That they might truly understand what those parables mean. And I believe that Pastor Kevin actually preached on one of those parables uh, last week. And As Jesus has continued to share who he is in different little ways and continue to answer this question as to his identity in different little ways, his disciples still have not yet gotten it, right? They still look at their rabbi, who they're following, they still don't fully understand who Jesus is. And so in this sea journey from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, all of a sudden we find that the volume is turned up on this question. And again, today... As we consider this question, I think we are going to find that the answer is so clearly powerful that Jesus is the true Messiah who is greater than everything. Now, when I say he's greater than everything, what do I mean? What do we mean by he's greater than everything? And the the first part of the story kind of answers that for us. The first part of the story tells us that Jesus is greater or Jesus is over the natural. He is greater than anything natural. He is over all that is natural. And this story, the the story of Jesus and the disciples on the boat in the Sea of Galilee, does this in in an amazing way. It's a wonderful way. And you know what that way is? It links it back to the Old Testament. And so there are two references back to the Old Testament here that I I think are fascinating. And the first one is the story of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah. Jonah was a a man called to be a prophet. He was a man called by God to go and preach to his enemies. And he was supposed to go to his enemies and he was supposed to to preach uh, repentance, call them to repent, repent, repent and and seek forgiveness. And what did Jonah do? He said, no, Jonah didn't want to do that. Jonah hated his enemies. In fact, he wanted his enemies to get what was theirs. He wanted his enemies to get what was coming for them. And so, and so God is calling Jonah to go and, and preach repentance. And instead of doing that, instead of going to Nineveh, what does Jonah do? But he says, nope, and he goes in the complete opposite direction. In fact, he doesn't just go in the complete opposite direction, but he goes to the furthest place that he thinks he can get. Because he's trying to flee the presence and the call of God. And so he goes to this place called Tarshish, which at the, at the or he's, he's not, he doesn't get there, but he's trying to get there. He, he's trying to get to Tarshish, which at the time was the farthest point of the known world. And so rather than obey God, he tries to run as far away as he can. Has anybody ever been in that situation? Now that's not the end of the story with Jonah, right? Jonah gets on a boat and all of a sudden God sends a storm Right and the storm swells up, and it's this crazy storm that's happening that's threatening to break the boat apart. And as, as that's happening, what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. He's asleep in, down in the base of the boat as if nothing is happening around him, and all of a sudden the sailors are, are freaking out, and they go to wake him up, and they, they say, Jonah, come on, help us. Pray to your God so that we could somehow get some relief here. And, and Jonah... After, you know, constantly kind of ignoring them at the beginning, he, he finally admits to it that he's been running from God and that God is the one who sent this storm. And he says to them, just just throw me in the sea and it'll become calm. And they, they say to him, well, Jonah, we, we can't do that. We're not going to be murderers. We're going to have blood on our hands. We're not going to throw you into the sea. But, but finally they do it and the raging sea became calm. God stopped the storm. Now, if you haven't read the rest of the story, you really should. It's, it's an amazing thing. Like, what happens next, right? Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish, and then he finally repents, and he gets thrown up onto the shores, and then he goes and reluctantly preaches to his enemies, and his enemies actually do repent, and they are forgiven and restored. And Jonah sits under a tree and is bitter about it. And that's how the story ends. It's a wonderful story of God's mercy, and it's an amazing story that has the gospel woven throughout it. And so go back and read it. But if we look at this story of Jonah, why did I just spend some time to remind you of the story of Jonah? You and I can't help but notice the amazing parallels between what we just read in G- about Jesus and Mark and Jonah. So let's look at these parallels between the two. Mark chapter 4, 37. What do we see but, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Jump over to Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. That's not the only parallel. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. We already said, Jonah chapter 1, verse 5. What was Jonah doing? He was asleep. And then look at uh, the fact that both Jesus and Jonah in the middle of this windstorm uh, were asleep. And people came to them and said, don't you care? Don't you care? Let's continue to look at the parallels. Jonah chapter 1 verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging or it became calm. Mark chapter 4 verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Jonah chapter 1 verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Mark chapter 4 verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. Now this fear here is actually more of a reverent awe. It's an amazement. It's I can't believe what just happened. Holy smokes. Did you just see that? It's a falling to your knees in awe. And in the case of the sailors in Jonah, this fear actually turns to worship, doesn't it? They, they, make sac- they offer sacrifices and they make vows to the God of Jonah because they have just seen his power on display. Now, all this that is happening that evening on the Sea of Galilee, with Jesus and the disciples in that boat, is meant to help the disciples and all who read that uh, realize who Jesus truly is. Is So as all this is happening, right, the disciples should be stopping and remembering Jonah. They're out there in the Sea of Galilee and and they're seeing everything happen very similarly to a story that they know. That they know well. And so they should be stopping and and, 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 and taking a, a, a grasp, a picture of what's happening and asking themselves, the last time in the story of God... When a raging windstorm was able to be calmed, it was not calmed by any men, but it was calmed by who? God. God is the only one who can do that. And so if Jesus does that, what does that say about Jesus? But that Jesus is God. If, if no one else can do this, and the only other time we've seen this and that we've been taught about this is that it's God who does that, who's able to make bay him, the answer should be so simple for them. Only God can do this. Jesus must, in fact, be God. Now, God allowed all this uh, to happen that night exactly as it did so that you and I, just like the disciples, would know the same thing, that Jesus is not just a teacher, not just a philosopher, not just a a pretty cool guy who's got a good following and can do some magic tricks, but that Jesus Christ is in fact God. And while the Jonah connection here is a fascinating one, there's another Old Testament connection in here that, that helps us to really see this truth, to really understand this big idea from the text. And this Old Testament connection that I'm about to share with you is one that kind of takes us from not just understanding that Jesus Christ is God, but that Jesus Christ is God, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the, 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 the priest and, and, and king and prophet, the true one, right? And that's found in Psalm 107. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to one Psalm 107. It'll also be up here on the screen for you. Now this psalm was written a thousand years before this moment. And it was written uh, by David, who's writing a messianic prophecy. And, uh, and he's writing this so that you and I and anybody who might be reading it might, be know, might know what exactly to look for when the Messiah comes. And then when, the, when Jesus does arrive, might be able to match it up and say, see, this is exactly who was supposed to come. Jesus matches it perfectly. So let's look at Psalm 107. Pick me up in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Church, is this not fascinating? A thousand years before Jesus is even born, King David writes these words that tells you exactly about these types of people who are going to be out on the sea, and the feelings that they're going to have, and the way in which they're going to, to cry out to God and then the way in which God is going to rescue them. And then that night on the Sea of Galilee, it happens just like he wrote about. Is that not amazing? And so, again, as you stop and think about these good Jewish boys who are sitting there as fishermen, some of them and others in other vocations, in that boat on that night, they should be stopping and remembering, oh yeah, I remember Psalm 107. Man, this matches it perfectly. This must tell me without a doubt that Jesus is God, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who has come to rescue us from all of our sins. And so Jesus in Mark 4, 39 rebukes the winds and the waves, and the power of nature is on display, right? And he tells all of it to stop so that he might, in fact, be able to demonstrate that he is superior over the natural world. Church, you and I have so many things that we encounter on a daily basis. Maybe for some of us it's, it's a, a natural disaster that you've encountered in your life at some point, right? Maybe you've been in a hurricane or a tornado or something else and you've, you've come face to face with, with these types of, of natural forces, right? But for others of us, when you think about the natural world, sometimes it's just relationships with people, that are in turmoil, turmoil, or there's financial hardship that we encounter, or or there's other things in the natural world that, that impact us. You need to know and hear loudly today that Jesus Christ is greater and stronger than all of that. You're not, but he is. And you can find your hope and your trust in him today. So Jesus Christ is in fact... God over the natural. But the story doesn't stop there, right? Then we get into chapter 5, and we see that as Christ arrives to the other side, he shows us that he is also God over the supernatural. He is also God over the supernatural. Now, remember that this journey was not just about them taking a nice boat ride, right? Yes, at the, in the lead up to this, Jesus had been teaching and he was tired and the disciples were tired of taking care of everybody. And they, they had had so many crowds that they had to pull the boat out and, and, and Jesus had to sit in the wa- be in the boat in the water so that the crowds wouldn't get all over him, right? Yes, all that was happening, but this wasn't just about him going on a little nice evening boat ride. Jesus had a destination in mind, remember? Let us go to the other side. And so as he arrives on the other side at the, in chapter 5, verse 1, this was all part of Jesus' plan. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 and be reminded of it again. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now as soon as Jesus arrives, immediately he's met by something supernatural that's going on. Now, the the Greek here, I did the seminary thing too, and so I learned a little bit of Greek. The Greek here is really presenting for us a showdown. Literally in the Greek it says out of the boat came Jesus, out of the tomb came out of the tombs came the man. And so you can hear that western kind of soundtrack already playing in the background, right? It's like a whistle, right? It's like or something like that, like there's, like it's about to go down, right? That type of thing is, is what we're expecting right here. Jesus and this man coming out of the, the tombs. And as, as he's described, let's look at what the text says here about the man. They say he has an unclean spirit. And, and the Greek word, I have got it up there for you so you can look at it, it really means foul, it means unholy, it means that something is off, with this person deep within the core of who they are, deep within their spirit. Maybe you've heard the expression before, something just doesn't smell right about this situation, right? That's what we're talking about here as this man comes up. But it goes far beyond just something is off about this man. And in all the biblical references to this type of thing, we see that it is not just about a man being weird or quirky or a little off, but it's that he's got something dark and evil inside of him. Say it another way, this man is coming out of the tombs and he is possessed by something demonic. And it is making him diabolical. Now the rest of the text supports this interpretation. Look at verse 3. Look at the description of this man. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains... ...he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the text starts off by telling you that he lived in the tombs... ...which means he was banished... ...and he was put outside the camp by the authorities. And his choice of home wasn't somewhere under a tree... ...wasn't a place along the water... ...but was these tombs where they would store dead people... ...which shows you in itself that if that was comfortable, that there was something deep and dark within him. Now, everything about this man reeked of darkness and death. And furthermore, he was in the land of the Gerasenes, right? And the land of the Gerasenes is that he was in the land of the Gentiles. And not just the land of the Gentiles, but he was in the land of the Gentiles where they raised pigs, and for Jewish people to, to raise to, to raise pigs, to touch pigs, to come in contact with pigs was was unheard of, completely unclean. It was the, the most filthy animal. You couldn't be in the presence of a pig. You couldn't touch a pig. You couldn't, couldn't eat a pig. But praise the Lord for Jesus and the New Covenant Church. We can now have bacon. Can we praise the Lord for bacon? Amen. We're no longer We don't have to worry about that. You can praise the Lord for bacon, right? Yeah, I can too. And so, so back then, though, they couldn't praise the Lord for bacon. So they had to stay away as far as they could because this was a forbidden animal. And so if we are seeing the picture being painted here of this man, not only is he, is, does he have something dark in him, not only is he, is he unclean, but he's also living in a place that is the, the, the picture of what it looks like to be unclean. If there's any supernatural, spiritual obstacle that Jesus is facing here this is the greatest one this is the greatest one this man was not just banished from the community but he was also imprisoned right they chained him up but the devil gave him supernatural strength and so he was able to break free from his imprisonment and why did he was he able to break free but so he could harm himself he was tormented he was at war with himself he was trying to injure himself he was an outcast, impure, imprisoned, and the devil was clearly trying to destroy him. And Jesus, by his own words in John chapter 10, verse 10, says this, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You see, the devil's plan is that he recognizes that all humans are made in God's image. And so he wants to, he wants to destroy as many humans as he can because they're meant to be image bearers. And he thinks, if I can just destroy the lives of all these different people, if I could get them to hurt themselves even then maybe I can steal some of God's glory. I can remove some of the light that God shines in the world. Now, of course, the devil can never rob our God of his glory. Amen? But this is what demons do. Sometimes you and I, we stop and we think about demons, and I won't get into it too much here, but we stop and we think about those crazy characters that maybe we've seen in an image Or some story that we've heard. Or that scary movie poster that we walk past. And we think, oh, that's how the devil is always coming for you and for me. In these these creepy manifestations. But the reality is, do you know how the devil usually attacks you and me? Through lies. Through accusations. Through little whispers and questions that are supposed to make you doubt who you are in Christ. It's not... And I think you and I need to realize that that sometimes we get caught up in thinking about how do I handle all the circumstances in my life, situation in my life, we don't even realize that the devil is attacking us in different ways. And that just like we need Jesus Christ to be greater and stronger in our lives that are physical and natural, protection from all these things, we also desperately need him in our lives to help us in the spiritual attacks, in the war that we have with the enemy. What does Ephesians 6, 12 say? But that we are uh, not at battle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers. The devil has many schemes and we need to be aware of it. And so as Jesus approaches here, right, we see that this man is is not just a representation of darkness and death in his spirit and in his residence, but he's actually become a manifestation at this point. He is is actually kind of, the the demons are controlling him. And so Jesus walks up boldly. Now I can guarantee you it's not in the story, but I think if we can read between the lines and and try to imagine it, those disciples are nowhere near Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is walking up for this showdown. Those disciples are probably in the boat trying to push the boat back out, calling to Jesus, let's get out of here. Why did we land here? They're probably terrified, but Jesus is walking up boldly. And the man falls down right before him, not in worship, but out of respect for Jesus' authority. And the demons start to control his words. And this is a combination of the man and the demons who respond, right? Jesus says, what is your name? Singular. And he starts to respond by saying, uh, my name is Legion. And then he goes to we, for we are many. So there is this like balance here. Is this the man? Is it the demons? You can see that this is a tormented person. And the, the voice that responds says that uh, we are a legion, that, which means that, that we have a, lo- a lot of us in, in him, right? I had to go back and do the research and find out how many is a legion. 5,600 men is a Roman legion. Now, I don't know if there were 5,600 demons in this man. We do know that 2,000 pigs ran off, Right? So maybe it was just 2,000, but either way, 2,000 or 5,000, it's a lot of demons that Jesus is coming up against. This man is clearly possessed, and Jesus clearly shows his sovereign power over this situation. There's nothing that could come against our God. Not the most unclean, not the most dark, not the most evil, not the most over-the-top possessed man Nothing can stand in the way of Jesus because he is greater and stronger than everything. Why? Because he is God. Amen? And all Jesus has to do is speak and this man is set free. Our text says that after Jesus commanded the demons to come out of him, the townsfolk come to see what happened and look at verse 15. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Now, this text, this part of the story I told you at the beginning, this is one story in two parts. It doesn't just tell us that Jesus is God over the natural, over the supernatural, it also tells us that Jesus is, in fact, God. The Messiah, right? So just like in the story at the, the other the other part of the story where we see at this in, in the Sea of the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, that we find out that Jesus is greater over nature, and that Jesus is in fact God, because the Old Testament references, this shows us that Jesus is in fact God over the supernatural, but it also shows us very clearly who, who he is, what it, what his identity is. And we see that because at this point in the Gospel of Mark, no human being has ever been able to confess. Who Jesus actually is, as this question has been driven over and over again. And now suddenly, for the first time, we are hearing through human lips, maybe not with a human voice, but with human lips, who Jesus actually is. These demons, they find themselves in the presence of the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and they call out to him and identify him properly, don't they? Look at verse 7 of chapter 5. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most... Hi God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For the disciples who were there, who are watching this, this is the second time in a matter of hours that they have now witnessed that their rabbi is not just a good teacher, but that he is in fact God. Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Now, church, as we look at these two parts of the story, as we look at these two parts in this journey, from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, we find right in the middle, like a linchpin between a truck and a trailer, that there is a question that Jesus asks. And I believe that question is for all of us today. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now the gospel of Luke tells this story also in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. We see that Luke adds some nuance to what Jesus is asking here. Look at Luke chapter 8, verse 25. It's recorded this way. He said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And this is not saying, have you lost your faith? Remember, they have not even confessed Jesus Christ as Lord yet. So they didn't have faith to begin with. They haven't lost it. It's not like they have to go around looking for it. What what Jesus is saying, what Mark and Luke are highlighting for us here today is in whom or in what is your faith? Where are you placing your faith? Is it in your circumstances? Is it in your spiritual safety? Or is it in Jesus? Is, Is it in the only one who is greater and stronger than everything? Our hope, our Lord Our Savior. You know, there's a great Dutch painter, his name is Rembrandt, and uh, he created a painting that details this story that's titled Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I think I got a picture of it up there. And uh, as you look at it, it's going to be hard to see, but you guys can go look at it on your phones later or something. But um, I wish you could still see it. It used to be on display at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum until some people stole it several years back. And so you can't actually go see it, but you'll find it on on the computer. But you see in this painting that the boat, right? This is the picture of what we just read. The boat is raised on an angle by the waves. And some of the disciples are wrestling with the sail and others are pleading with Jesus to wake up. And you've got the light and the dark contrasting the tension between life and death. But if you look closely, look closely, right in the middle of the scene there is one character who is grasping a rope and holding tight to his hat and he's staring out at the viewer. It's as though he's asking, what about you? Now it's been established that this character in the middle is a self-portrait of the artist himself. Like so many of his paintings, Rembrandt painted himself into it. But it isn't just his face that we see here, staring out at you and me. But if you look even more closely, you'd have to take a magnifying glass, but it's there you would see etched into the rudder of the ship is his own name. Rembrandt. You see, Rembrandt isn't just asking you and me, what about you? He's also asking, what about me? Where will I turn when the storms of life hit and I'm afraid? Will I get consumed by my financial worry, by my relational issues, by my employment status, by my health circumstances? Will I be consumed by the lies and the accusations and the anxiety and the worry that seem to constantly penetrate my thoughts? Will I try in those moments to control the situation or to escape? Church, do you know that that's what we do when we're afraid? Motivated by fear. Fear is not a bad thing. It's It's a natural emotion. But it always should push us in the right direction. And sometimes we get pushed in the wrong direction where we try to control everything and forget that we're not stronger, that we're not greater, that we aren't neo in the matrix. And sometimes we try to escape and we run to substances or to activities or to any number of things that will numb the pain. Do you know that sometimes we actually try to run into pain because pain feels good? Sometimes it just feels good. To feel bad, right? Because at least we can control that. At least we're in charge in that place. We either control or we escape. What about you? What about me? You see, Jesus is on display here as God, the one who is greater than everything, both natural and supernatural, both physical and spiritual. And when everything else in your life is going to change and fail, He never will. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? That's your God. You can rely upon Him, He is your hope. When we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, and trials, or when we find ourselves under spiritual oppression or attack, again, it is natural to be afraid. But do you grab the rudder of the ship in your life and, and think that you can control everything? Or do you run to Jesus every time? Jesus is the only one. The only one who will give you safety and security. ...who will restore you, who will help you... ...who will not just carry you through the storm... ...but will give you strength through it all. He's the only one who will get us home. You see, the truth is when fear consumes you and me, church... ...we need to know this... ...that we must exchange our fear for faith in Jesus. We must exchange our fear for faith in Jesus... Now, what does it look like to have faith in Jesus? Faith in Jesus trusts in his presence. That no matter what happens, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Faith faith in Jesus trusts in his promises. That he will carry us through to the promised land. And he will restore us fully on that day. Amen? Faith in Jesus trusts in his character. That he is good. And that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Amen. If we can just get to a place of exchanging our fear for faith in Jesus, then we would find that he is truly the Messiah who is greater than everything. And we would really start to flourish in our lives. Let me just close with this story. I was, I was uh, raised on the mission field. I was a missionary kid. And so we would come back from Africa and um, the missionary group that I was a part of Uh, one time they wanted to treat us and so we had this big conference in florida so we all came back and um, you know, they, I, I forget how old I was, maybe I was 12 or 13, but we all came back and, and they decided to give us all tickets, free tickets to one of those uh, big amusement park uh, spaces and, you know, where all the, all the roller coaster rides are and everything. And so we got to go for free to this place as these missionary kids, all back from all these different places around the world. And so I was excited and I was making new friends. And, and like anyone at that age, I was kind of wanting to be accepted by my new friends, right? But I had, as I'm looking around, I'm like, I don't really know much about this amusement park type of world. I've, I've never been on a roller coaster, so I don't know too much about it, but all my friends are really excited about roller coasters. And so they'll be like, hey, man, we got to go check out this roller coaster, that roller coaster. Here's a picture of the, the Batman roller coaster at Six Flags. Just to give you a picture uh, of a roller coaster, the type I'm talking about. So they're all excited about getting on the roller coaster, and uh, and I, you know, I don't, I want to impress my friends, so I'm sitting there going, "Oh yeah, it's going to be awesome. Let's do it. Let's go, man. Let's roller coasters." Yeah, but inside I'm like, I'm so nervous, I'm so afraid, right? And what happens when you go to get in line at a roller coaster? You go there and you watch it and you hear and see that thing go flying by how many times? You hear the screams and you're watching the feet dangle and it is just adding to your anxiety if you're afraid of roller coasters, right? And so I'm standing in line and I'm getting more and more nervous, sweat's dripping. I'm blaming it on the the Florida sun, but it's really just, I'm nervous and we're getting closer and closer. And I'm just praying God, like help here, all right? And then when we get to the front, sure enough, Is that roller coaster comes around and it's my turn, guess where I get to sit? I am in the front row, praise the Lord. He's just messing with me at that point. So I'm in the front row of the roller coaster, and I get on, and I got my friend with me right there, and my friend is is sitting there going, John, this is going to be great, right, awesome. I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, awesome. Strap in, lock in, hold on tight. I'm holding on to the bar. We get up to the top, right, And, and I'm like, okay, my friend's not looking anymore, and do you know what I do? I close my eyes as tight as I can and the roller coaster's whipping around and my eyes are shut and I can hear the screams and we're going in and out and I'm just praying the whole time, Lord, Lord, help, help. I don't want to die. I want to live. Please, Lord, help me. And and you know how at the end of a roller coaster kind of starts to slow down, click, 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 click? Well, I don't know that. And so it's starting to slow down, click, and I still got my eyes shut like this. And my friend is like, oh, this is awesome. Isn't it great, John? Wasn't that great? And I'm like, oh, yeah, the best. And he looks over at me and he goes, John, are your eyes closed? And I was like, oh, no, I just got a bug in my, (laughs) trying to act cool. I was so petrified, so consumed by my fear that I couldn't enjoy that ride. I had no fun on that ride. Now, it was only as I got older and I started to be able to trust the machine that it would actually carry me through that I actually started to have fun and enjoy the ride, enjoy the journey. And so now I can go on roller coasters, I can put my hands up and I can scream and yell like everyone else. Why? Because I trust the machine. I trust it. Church, if you and me don't trust Jesus through this journey of life, it is going to be a very, very difficult life for you. It's going to be so hard for all of us if we don't stop and turn to the one who is greater and bigger than everything. You want to flourish in this life. You want to to not just make it but thrive. Turn to Jesus no matter what comes. No matter if it's something natural or supernatural. Jesus is the true Messiah who is greater than everything. He is your pathway to joy. He is worthy of our love and affection because he's God. The creator and the sustainer of it all. The one who holds everything together. Do you believe that? That he holds everything together? Can you trust him? What are the storms and the fears and the worries of your life? Exchange those fears for faith in Jesus Christ today. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus before, maybe you've heard about this Jesus and that question has been presented to you, who is Jesus? I know you have fears. We all do. Today, exchange those fears for faith in him and find that he truly is greater and stronger than everything. And he will take you and lead you home on this journey of life. Jesus is God, the true Messiah, who is greater than everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.